This is a Vault Studios production. This show contains adult subject matter and is meant for mature audiences only. The hole in Jessica Boynton's memory remains. She remembers nothing about the apparent shooting that left her in a medically induced coma in April 2016. She recalls some of the hours leading up to her attempted suicide. A trip to Walmart, an argument with her husband Matthew, getting ready to walk the dog. But that's it. The final minutes inside the closet are blank, gone. And if you ask her, there was no attempted suicide. There's no way she tried to kill herself. But that's what they've told her. And the Georgia Bureau of Investigation clears her husband of any involvement. Matthew Boynton goes back to work for the Griffin Police Department. But the next chapter in this story might be the strangest yet. I'm Brendan Keefe. This is The Officer's Wife, Chapter 5. Jessica says it wasn't attempted suicide, and there are those in town who believe her. It makes sense that her family and friends are among those. And there are others, too. Facts can't be contrived. Facts are, by nature, factual. They can't be later contrived or twisted to fit a hypothesis or a preconceived, predetermined scenario. Facts are what they are. Sheila Matthews is the editor and publisher of The Grip, Griffin's weekly independent newspaper. Her office sits over a coffee shop right on Griffin's Main Street, where she has a bird's-eye view of daily life in town. Griffin still maintains a lot of small-town southern charm, but it also has some of the um, problems more inherent to large cities. There's, of course, there's uh, crime, gangs. There's there's gang presence here. Um, a fairly heavy amount of drugs. It's, it's, a, it's a mill town. It was a mill town. The, um, the mills drove the local economy for many years. And once the mills began to close, then there were much higher rates of unemployment. The mills tended to really provide for their employees well, and even as far as housing was concerned. So once the mills closed, um, a lot of those communities fell into um higher states of higher rates of unemployment, of course, and higher poverty levels. Um, and that's are those are things you can still see today around town as you drive through. She's a one person operation and you get the sense she's found her destiny. She has an energy, a nervous energy that probably serves her well as a journalist. And she's not afraid of ruffling feathers. Inside her office, right across the street from the city building in Griffin's quaint downtown district, She spends her days asking questions, digging for the truth about anything that comes her way. And when Sheila gets her hands on Jessica Boynton's case file, she's off to the races. There are a lot of questions that I would love to have answered. That's the bottom line for me. And unfortunately, it appears those questions will never be answered. What bothers her most about that night are Matthew's texts to his girlfriend. Not just what he's texting her, but when he's texting and where he was when those texts went out. Let's go back to that night. Matthew insists that he ran into the apartment after hearing shots, checked the closet, but it was locked, and then ran back outside where he called into dispatch on his police radio. Griffin Police Corporal Robert Jones sees Matthew outside the apartment. Was the front door already open or did you open it? The the front door was... uh... Fuck, man. No, the door's locked. I had to put my key in it. 
but when I come when I come up the stairs, I, I don't even know where my fucking keys are. I don't know where my phone is. I have my keys and my phone in my hand. I didn't have a I didn't have an off duty weapon. Nothing. I only got that one gun. My shotguns in the car don't even have any bullets in it. This is the first we hear about Matthew's phone that night. Matthew himself saying he doesn't know where he left it. Later that morning, when Corporal Jones is interviewed by the GBI and asked about seeing Matthew outside the apartment, he mentions the conversation. Did he go inside the apartment? Once we was there, he he never went in. Okay. Um, uh, he, he did say that he did go in because we found his keys and his cell phone inside. Okay, but he went in, so he didn't go in when you guys were there. Mm-mm. No, the door, the apartment door was open. Um, I had to ask him, I said, did you go inside? And um, he said he, his babies were crying, so he went inside. And um, he laid his keys on the counter. He couldn't remember where he put his phone at. Mm-hmm. But his phone, I believe, was next to the microwave in the kitchen. In fact, when Corporal Jones is interviewed about what he saw and heard that night, he mentions Matthew's phone by the microwave more than once. And he kept asking for his his phone. And um, I said, where's it at? Where's it at? He said, it's somewhere up there. He said, my keys and my phone are up there. Okay. And um, so I looked. I was thinking it was outside, but that's when I noticed his keys were on the counter and his phone was near the microwave. A third time, Corporal Jones mentions the cell phone to investigators, not just seeing it there, but making sure it stayed there, too. He said, Brian, he's like, where's my keys and my... uh," He said, my keys and my phone are up there somewhere. I said, I'll go up there and check. And that's why I seen it on the... His keys on the counter and his phone by the microwave. And I just left it there. I told nobody not to mess with it. Right. For Sheila Matthews, this detail about Matthews' phone is important, vital even. Knowing what she knows about the location of the phone and reading through the GBI's extensive report, Sheila realizes something's not right, not adding up. Sheila Matthews picks up the phone and calls Special Agent Chris DeMarco. GBI Columbus. Sheila, speak with Chris DeMarco. All right, hold on just a second. Thank you. As she's accustomed to doing when conducting interviews for the newspaper, Sheila records the conversation. Agent Walker. Hey there, this is Sheila Matthews with The Grip. How are you? Hey, Sheila. Sheila tells DeMarco Griffin Police Chief Mike Yates referred her to the GBI to answer any questions. She begins by asking about a summary of the case. In the case file, I did not actually see... Y'all, was there any sort of a summary of what... Y'all actually think happened that night? Or was it just the, the separate interviews and everything? No, we don't usually put a summary in there, like what we what we theorize with the cases. We just let the the evidence and the the facts speak. That's it. We don't we don't actually put what we what we believe what happened in there. Okay, gotcha. Um what do you believe happened that night? Uh, I'm not going to go into that shit. I think the case file is pretty self-explanatory. Sheila asked DeMarco about his interview with Matthew Boynton and the timeline of events according to the GBI's case file, pointing out discrepancies. One glaring item that sticks out to her is Matthew Boynton's phone that night. In that interview, he stated when he was going through and describing, you know, the, the events and, you know, the sequence and what had happened and so on and so forth. If I understand correctly, the way he presented to you, presented it to you 
was that he had received the text message while he was on his way to the Waffle House to meet Josh Guthrie to get a bite to eat. Mm-hmm. And that he definitely took the text message suicide threat from his wife very seriously. He immediately turned around and started going back home. Am I correct so far? Yeah. Sheila goes on to recount Matthew's call to 911 as he raced home to his wife, going close to 90 miles per hour at times before arriving home. Then she recaps for DeMarco what Matthew told investigators about arriving at the apartment, running up the stairs, hearing two shots, going inside. After checking the master bedroom and finding the locked closet door, Matthew ran to the kitchen where his police radio was charging. He said that he grabbed his radio and then ran out of the house. As he was running out of the house is when he turned his radio on and he said that he called out on the radio once he was outside of the apartment in the breezeway. Mm-hmm. That, that's correct? Sounds like it. Okay, and he said that he never re-entered the apartment. Correct. And his state of mind, what he said to you, and I'm directly quoting, he said, I was crying, I was in shock, I was scared to death. Correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess that that's what you're reading right now. I, yeah. There's a reason Sheila's taking DeMarco through all of this, and it comes down to where Matthew was that night, where his phone was, and who he was in touch with on that phone. A matter of minutes, seconds even, before and after he runs in and then back out of the house. She confirms that Jessica's text, the one mentioning suicide, came into his phone at 12.45 that night. Matthew then tried to call Jessica back with no luck, Then 10 minutes later at 12.55, as he's racing home, he gets a text from his girlfriend. Where she said, ha ha ha, you about gave me a heart attack, freak. And then he responded and said, ha ha, I'm sorry, I didn't think about that, lol. And he actually sent that text message, ha ha, lol, to his girlfriend before he called 911 about his wife's suicide threat. So I just wondered how that correlates with his statement that he was that he took the, the the threat seriously and that he was driving 90 miles an hour down Carver Road if he's that upset driving 90 miles an hour down Carver Road how does that correlate with him sending his girlfriend a text message haha lol before he calls and asks for EMS to go to his apartment and check on his wife she questions Matthew's demeanor when he thought his wife was suicidal at home he told the GBI he was upset but then sent that lol text to his girlfriend around the same time. He seemed pretty upset to me. He seemed pretty upset when he was talking on the radio. Have you heard that? Have you heard that traffic on him talking on the radio? I have. And he you can hear the emotion in his voice. It does sound like he was crying. Sheila agrees. You can hear Matthew's distress when he made that call from the apartment. But she moves on. Her next line of questioning, even more critical in her opinion, is a text Matthew sent seven seconds before he called dispatch about shots fired at his apartment, presumably right around the same time he was sweeping through his apartment and then running back outside. At one o'clock, even on the news, he sent a text message from his cell phone to Courtney Calloway that says, and I quote, give me a few to text back. Long story, I'll tell you later. So that was seven, that was seven seconds prior to the dispatcher keying in 3542 for the two shots fired. So that was almost immediately at the same time, correct? Okay, I'm not looking at what you're looking at, but the next the next thing on his text messages 
is at one thirty or one minute and thirty seconds after one o'clock. So one o'clock, one minute and thirty seconds. He receives a text message from Courtney Calloway that states, "Okay, dot 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 dot. Good night." And that text from his girlfriend is marked as red on Matthew's phone, according to phone records. Less than thirty seconds after he calls dispatch from his radio outside the apartment. His state of mind: I was scared to death. He was so afraid of not knowing where she was, what her intentions were, that he grabbed the radio, ran out, and never ran her the apartment. His emotional call out on the radio was from the breezeway of the apartment. And yet, this activity on his cell phone had to have taken place inside the kitchen in his apartment. Now, how do you come to that conclusion? Because if you go to the photographs that are part of your investigative case file, there's a photograph and also the, um, the evidence report for his cell phone, mm-hmm. it was retrieved from the kitchen counter in front of the microwave oven. No, it wasn't. It was actually from, from him. We put it on the counter to take a picture of it. However, footage from police body cams from officers who rushed inside the apartment shows the phone on the counter by the microwave, right where it was photographed by the GBI later for evidence. The evidence report also states that the phone was on the kitchen counter, but DeMarco says that's not right. I think he had his phone with him. I think the, the, the picture, the phone, I don't know. I, I'm, I'd have to look at their stuff, but, but I'd have to look back at okay, well, the case file. Yeah, if you, need to, if, you need, if you need to do that, I think that I think this actually is an extremely important question. Okay. And, I mean, if, he was in the, if he was that upset and that terrified, why would he be standing in the kitchen to text his girlfriend and wait for her to reply? So you're, that's how you come to the conclusion that based on that, that's he's in he's in the kitchen doing that. Based on the evidence, the G, a GBI evidence report, a GBI search warrant affidavit, and the exhibit list, and his sworn testimony and his statement to you during the interview, that's what I based it on. Yes. Okay. Well, that's not what we based it on. So. Okay, so what? Okay, so um, that's why I guess I guess that would be my question. And what did y'all base it on? Without saying exactly where Matthew was or whether his phone was in the kitchen or not, Demarco deflects the question. So I have to look at look at exactly what you're looking at and stuff. But I do know this. Okay. According to Jessica, Matthew Boynton wasn't even in the apartment when all this happened. Okay. Second of all, we've got based on actual evidence. That was actually a self-inflicted gunshot wound that happened to her. Nothing else leads us to believe that anything else happened to her besides her pulling the trigger. Sheila tells DeMarco she's not trying to accuse Matthew of anything, but wants to understand where Matthew's phone actually was when the GBI arrived on scene. Based on his statements and the affidavit and the evidence report, that all says that the phone was located on the kitchen counter. He has testified in court and in his interview to you that he went into the kitchen to get his radio, got his radio, turned the radio on as he was leaving the apartment, called out on the radio after he was outside of the apartment in the breezeway, and that he never reentered the apartment. So if he never reentered the apartment... Right. How did his phone get in there? Is that what you're saying? How did his phone get in there, and how was there activity on his phone if he was not in the kitchen with his phone? Well, I mean, it could, I, mean I don't know. It could have been simply that... Um... All his, you know, he left his stuff there. His phone was given to someone else at Griffin PD. They put the phone in the thing because they knew GBI wanted it, and that's where we're going to be while he was taken to the police department. I mean, 
I'm sure there's a plausible explanation to it without trying to come up with some sort of, you know, theory that, oh, he has to be here in the kitchen answering these text messages, right? Couldn't that be plausible? Like someone from his supervisor, his Lieutenant Keys or something like that, saying, hey, leave all your stuff here. GBI's going to want it, and it's there in the apartment. DeMarco's answer doesn't fly with Sheila. That the location and possible movement of Matthew's cell phone would have been carefully documented. Might well, and, and again, I'm not obviously not a law enforcement officer, but his cell phone is considered physical evidence in a GBI investigation. I would like to think that if another officer had taken possession of his firearm, I mean, of his uh, of his cell phone, and had placed it anywhere inside of the crime scene, that it would have been noted by someone. Is that not generally? Is that not generally the way it's done? Sometimes, but then again, we had multiple people inside the crime scene, too. Fire, EMS, multiple police officers, police chief. I mean, I mean, there was multiple people inside the, inside the crime scene as well, you know, trying to get to Jessica, trying to assist her. Well, documented, who removed the firearm from the closet? It was placed on, you know, it was placed here in the bedroom, and it was moved to the, you know, to the little kind of bar thing in the kitchen. That was, that was well documented. And yet no one mentions one word about having taken his cell phone from him and put it in the kitchen. So yeah, that's what I, yeah, I would actually find that a little unusual since it is evidence in, a, in a, you know, any investigation if it's not, that the chain of custody of that phone is not documented. Is that not questionable? I mean, it would just—it would just depend. I mean, it's not—it's not like it was a, the firearm itself. It was his cell phone. Demarco seems perplexed as to what Sheila is asking him, or rather, what she's getting at with her line of questioning. I mean, but what are you—I mean, what are you trying to get at? Like, what he should be arrested for false statements that he's not upset? Would you consider those to be false statements? No. You would I not. Mean, he's, I mean, I don't think he was. I mean, I think the guy was upset that his wife had shot herself. Yes. I mean, I was there that night. I remember his frame of mind. Today, Sheila Matthews is still bothered by the inconsistencies of the timeline for Matthews' phone. It matters because it goes to the facts of the case. There is a very, very tight timeline, um, literally only a few minutes. And that information was relayed not only to a GBI agent during an official investigative act, it was um, uh, details of that Details within that timeline were also specified in sworn court testimony. Matthew told GBI investigators that he never went back into the apartment, yet his phone was found inside, on the counter in the kitchen. All the while, there's activity on his phone between him and his mistress when he was already outside the apartment, calling dispatch on his radio and in fear of an active shooter situation. So the question is, if the phone was left in the kitchen as seen on body camera video, how is he texting his girlfriend within seconds of calling in shots fired outside of the apartment? Sheila Matthews doesn't have that answer. My understanding of the laws of physics is that one person cannot be in two places at the same time. Sheila remembers Matthew's testimony during a hearing for a temporary protective order against Jessica for him and their two children while she's still recovering in the hospital. Part of his sworn court testimony was that he was, as one might understand, exceedingly fearful. He had been en route at the stairs to their apartment. He reported hearing two gunshots fired. He dropped down. Um, when the shots stopped, he stood, he entered the apartment, he tried to locate his wife. But again, he said in his 
court testimony, he was very fearful. He said that he ran into the kitchen, retrieved his radio, ran back out of the apartment. When he was asked if he had taken the time to check on their children, they had two young children, his testimony was that he was too fearful. He was too afraid for his life because he was uncertain where his wife was. He did not know if she was lying in wait for him. Um, she, he didn't know what might happen. He was afraid for his own safety. So he left the apartment without checking on his children. I think that's crucial as well because if his phone, we know now, was left in the kitchen, where was that text message sent? Was it sent while he was in the kitchen? If it was sent while he was in the kitchen, does that speak to his state of mind? Was he so fearful that he couldn't check on his children? as he stated in sworn court testimony. While there is video from Griffin police officers' body cams as they rushed into the apartment, showing Matthew's phone on the counter by the microwave prior to the GBI's arrival on scene, DeMarco argues the GBI placed it on the counter to photograph it for evidence. His first response to my question, the one that was immediately forthcoming and unwavering, was that the phone was not initially on the kitchen counter, that they had obtained the phone directly from Matthew Boynton, and agents, GBI agents, had placed it on the kitchen counter and taken that photograph. But what exactly are the facts surrounding Matthew's phone that night? According to the GBI phone extraction report, the last text message Matthew Boynton sent to his girlfriend, Courtney Calloway, was registered at exactly one o'clock on the dot. The dispatcher entered the first information on Matthew Boynton's radio call out regarding having heard the shots fired, smelling gunpowder. That was entered into the system by the dispatcher at seven seconds past one. To me, that timeline is important. There is a seven second gap there. However, according to ASAC DeMarco, and this was again after he said he needed would be reviewing the case file, in his email to me, he stated that the text message was sent at approximately 1 a.m., and that Matthew Boynton at that time remained in transit back to his apartment. Based on the timeline, that's impossible. When attempts to ask questions about these numerous inconsistencies are made, and the response is, we're not answering your questions. We stand behind the integrity of our investigation. You know, we're not going to respond to anything you have to ask. Then that's a problem, because at that point, the question is, where is the oversight? And who has oversight? But Sheila Matthews isn't the only one digging into this closed case, and this story is about to take another turn. While Jessica Boynton was in a coma at Atlanta Medical Center in 2016, over an hour away, Jessica's husband, Matthew, moves all their stuff out of their Griffin apartment on Ashford Way. But not all of Jessica's belongings will make it back to her. Something that will come back on her estranged husband when Will Sanders, a truck driver and self-described whistleblower, walks into Matthew's own police station in 2017. I got a Facebook message that said, hey, you know, I'm Mac, uh, Matthew's current girlfriend. They were on the, the splits and she had some, you know, she needed to talk to me. And she gave me her phone number and I called her and she said she had a bag of Jessica's stuff. Will carries a gym bag into the Griffin Police Department and sits down for an interview. So your name is Will Sanders, is that correct? Is it Will or William? Oh, Will. Just Will. Will, okay. And it says, um, video and audio testimony of victim witness recorded at Griffin Police Department headquarters on Thursday the 11th of May, 2017, 4.02 p.m. The bag holds Jessica Boynton's missing belongings, clothes and her retainer, stuff she'd packed prior to the shooting as she made plans to leave Matthew. I was under the assumption 
that they would want these things, that, that, it could, that they would want these in order to, to serve justice. That's because, as Will has learned back in December 2016, after Jessica and Matthew's divorce was finalized, she filed a complaint about her missing bag with the Griffin Police Department. But Matthew signed a statement swearing he didn't have her belongings. Well, well from, my, from my understanding is when she got out of Atlanta Medical is, you know, she was three weeks in a coma while these guys were moving her stuff out. They took all of her stuff. And she was, she had, when she got out of coma, she made contact saying, hey, I wanted my stuff. And this, was a, this went over almost a, a year of time of where he, you know, he says he gave her her stuff back, but actually he never did. And he actually moved two times and took her stuff two times with him and, and never, never gave it back. That's when Shelby, Matthew's ex-girlfriend, reached out to Will on Facebook and told him she had Jessica's missing gym bag. Will gives investigators a cell phone video he says Shelby recorded, showing where the bag was located inside Matthew's storage room. According to Will, Shelby asked Matthew about it. And he had said he can't give this back to Jessica because he would get in trouble. And so I made arrangements to, to get the bag. And once I got the bag, I did an open records act for any reports of a stolen bag because at the time I, did, I had no clue if there was actually a report on file. But originally, I didn't. Was I grabbed the, the bag of stuff. You know, I got the bag of stuff. I did my open records to make sure that it was, that it was actually missing. And then I turned it in to the police. I did what I was supposed to. Thank you guys. All right, thank you for coming in. Thank you for bringing that. But doing what he believed he was supposed to do wouldn't be the end of the conversation between the 45-year-old sleuthing truck driver and the Griffin Police Department. My, my reward for, for doing the right thing was the, the chief comes after me. After Will tells police about the Facebook message sent from Matthew's new girlfriend telling him about Jessica's bag, the Griffin police get a warrant for all of Will's private Facebook messages dating back several months, as well as those messages from Matthew Boynton, his girlfriend Shelby, and even Will Sanders' girlfriend. Problem is, the warrants for Will's Facebook messages cite two unrelated commercial burglary cases. But there are no burglary cases on file for Will. So how did they get in there? In fact, the Griffin Police Department claims it was a typo during the copy and paste for the warrant. I was furious that they would have me connected to commercial burglaries. So I asked for the case number. And once I got the case number, I asked for the entire case file. You know, I wanted everything. I wanted anything in there that would connect me to, to or exonerate me from these burglaries. And the city's response was, they're, they're, the case file is missing, it's gone. Then Will and the police chief take to Facebook and things get, well, ugly. It escalated exponentially. Um, it eventually resulted in the police chief, Chief Yates, posting a public comment telling Will Sanders that um, on Monday morning, the following Monday morning, all of his personal Facebook messages were going to be released pursuant to the Georgia Open Records Act so that anyone who was interested would be able to um, learn about his motivation. And on the Griffin Police Department Facebook page, 
no one knew outside of the police department that those Facebook messages had become evidence in a criminal investigation. After obtaining search warrants for Will's Facebook messages and immediately following their social media scuffle, Chief Yates sends a text message to the district attorney at 9.23 p.m. on that Friday night, asking for special permission to release Will's private Facebook messages to anyone who asks for them with an open records request. And just like that, all of Will Sanders' private messages are available to the public. Will calls it retaliation. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. He, 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 he came straight after me. I mean, he, he didn't push, I mean, he makes no bones about it, you know, and what he, what he put on Facebook. It is retribution. There's, there's no, nothing else behind it. This case is no longer just about Jessica or Matthew. For Will Sanders, it appears to have a cost, his privacy. Jessica is grateful to Will Sanders and Sheila Matthews for getting involved. She knows it's cost them, too. Both Will and Sheila have gotten a lot of backlash just from this. And, like, out of this, out of my case, is where all the problems came from. Like, if they would have done what they were supposed to do and investigate it correctly, you know, none of this would have happened. And, you know, Sheila, she has been, she has had one heck of a time with the chief of police down there, Mike Yates. Um, he has given her a really hard time with, you know, not wanting to do what he's supposed to do and, you know, not wanting to give her any information that, she can very easily get, he just doesn't want to give it to her. And then, you know, of course, Will, um, they accessed all of his Facebook messages and, you know, everything like that because they lied about him being involved in something that he was never involved with, like, at all. And that's not right. Just because clearly they have more power than we do. We know that, obviously. You don't have to ruin somebody else's life just because you don't like that they're saying the truth. There's one other thing we should mention. Sheila Matthews isn't the only one interested in Matthews' phone the night Jessica was found. Looking at the call logs from that night, Will Sanders notices another call in the early morning hours, hours after Matthews' desperate call to dispatch when his phone is already sealed up in an evidence bag. It's another call to Matthew's girlfriend. Will asks the GBI how a call could have gone out to a phone already sealed up and taken as evidence. The answer he later gets might not be what he expected. Hi, Mr. Sam, this is Fred, GBI again. Hey, how you doing? Good. I figured out what happened. Um, they were That phone never got back into the... Officer's hand. The agent had that phone. Uh, I think Demarco, uh, Chris Demarco, had the phone, and uh, they was trying to get in the gate. And uh, he accidentally uh, hit, I guess, the last dial call or whatever, and he called the girlfriend. So there was no conversation between when he just accidentally called that number when he had the phone in the uh, in his possession. The officer did not make the call. The agent did. Okay. So, but the official story is is Demarco. Had the phone, and he accidentally called the girlfriend. Yeah. yeah okay. That's what they told me. And like I said, I'm just getting this word of mouth. There's nothing documented on that or whatever. I'm just, I'm just calling and asking how did that, you know, happen or whatever. And that's what was, that's what was told. 
hey, that's, that's their story, right? <laughs> All right. But the Griffin Police Department holds the cards now. They have the bag of Jessica's belongings that Matthew swore he didn't have. It appears he did. With the evidence against him, Matthew Boynton heads into his own police station to talk to his own sergeant about Jessica's missing bag, a bag he denied having when Jessica filed her police report. Next time on The Officer's Wife. Talk to me, man. I mean, help me understand. Why would you say you didn't have the damn bag when you had it? You know you can't give a sworn statement and lie on it. I would have took care of it. I would have gotten the bag back to her. It's just a big, massive cover-up that nobody can seem to get to the bottom of. And it's I think it's more frustrating than anything because it's like you never fully get the truth. The Officer's Wife is a Vault Studios production in collaboration with WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta. The Vault Studios team includes executive producers Will Johnson and Adam Ostro and investigative journalist Jessica Knoll. Audio production by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Visit our website at vaultstudios.com to learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. And you can find us on Facebook at Inside the Crime Vault if you'd like to talk about this case and learn about other stories we're covering. If you or someone you know is in crisis, there are options available to help you cope. You can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at any time to speak with someone and get support. For confidential support available 24-7 for everyone in the United States, call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.